Good morning and welcome to episode 523 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. How are you? Okay. So today's the listener email show. You're doing some some play indexing as we speak. Is there anything else that you want to discuss? Uh, unless you're planning on making it a topic tomorrow, we should probably just note the Mariners' uh, decision to extend Jack Zrencic, uh uh-huh. for a, quote, multi-year deal. Okay. Uh, because uh, I think we had him uh, pegged for the wobbly chair. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I don't know. It surprised me. It certainly surprised me that he would have uh, stabilized his chair so quickly. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, I guess it. Uh, I guess it's a maybe it's a lesson to future GMs who are on the wobbly chair that that they should sign the the best free agent available, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they'll save their jobs. Um, that's it. That's the only lesson. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't know what other lessons to learn. I mean, we don't know how wobbly his chair was internally, publicly. It, it seemed to be among the wobbliest, and if that has, I mean, that's that's turned around very quickly. But publicly, I don't know that that the perception had changed so much that anyone expected him to suddenly get an extension either. So maybe, maybe ownership never lost confidence. Uh, if you, if they, let's say they missed the playoffs this year, right now they're about 50-50 to make the playoffs, uh, as a wild card team. So, you know, about one in four to, to, to play a series, but let's say they make the playoff or let's say they missed the playoffs this year. Would you consider them, what, what would you consider their playoff odds starting next season based on just what you know now? Mm, I'll say Thirty percent. Uh huh. And do you consider the Mariners right now to be a well-run team? Not particularly. I mean, uh, it's all it's all relative, obviously. But I mean, of thirty teams, you would you would put them in the in the the bottom half, yes. I think so. And and it's not particularly. It's it's not exactly easy to see what great things happened to Seattle in the last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Young was a pretty great thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, they got Robinson Cano, which is not an easy thing to do necessarily. Although I'm trying to remember where we were mentally in that at that time. It, at the time, it was like uh, he blew everybody away, right? I mean that mm-hmm. they, like it's not like they wooed him exactly so much as they. They spent what a lot of people at the time seemed to think was an overpay, right? Is that am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I think so. And we we didn't necessarily think that, but it I mean it was the highest offer that was reported by quite a bit, I believe. Uh, and um, anything else that they did? Anything else that has changed about the, the organization in the last nine months? They <laughs> traded for Kendry's Morales. That was weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, uh, I guess, I mean, I guess you could say, like, Paxton and Zanino mm-hmm. have, uh, have emerged to some degree. So you could say that their uh, farm system is paying off, and that, of course, is part of what the farm system, uh, of what the front office did. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, they got the Austin Jackson. That was that was a, a nice move. I like yeah. the Austin Jackson move. Yeah, I, I liked their deadline moves quite a bit. Right. So they held on to Franklin when it seemed like they were going to have to sell him for less than he was worth. They they uh, they played chicken with the rest of the league and they ended up winning that. Mm-hmm. I would say. So that was good. You could put that on your resume. Yeah. Okay. It's on the positive side of the ledger. So. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, it's, it seems odd, but on the other hand, GMs make like between I don't know eight hundred. Uh, wait, what do you think a GM makes? Do we we've, we've had this conversation, right? We looked it up once. I don't know that we have. It's I mean it's not easy to find. Yeah, but we've talked about it anyway. They don't make much, so they're easy to fire. So even mm-hmm. if he has a multi-year extension, uh, it's like uh, it's like you know DFAing uh, you know a reliever in late August is basically the equivalent of firing a GM with multiple years left on his contract. So mm-hmm. I guess maybe it's not even a big deal. Yeah. I the mean, multi-year element of it is usually just so that because that nobody wants to feel like a lame duck. Mm-hmm. And so more than more than a true commitment, it's a symbolic it's a yes. symbolic statement to the GM, but you know, they could very easily fire him. If they if they lost the next uh, 41 games, um, they could fire him very easily. Right. All right, so we're back to not really caring that much about, <laughs> about this. We're suitably not wound up, I guess. Yeah, it's something you sound, that I... You sound particularly not wound up tonight. This is <laughs> the least wound up I've heard you in some time. Yeah, you're right. I'm not, you sound like I'm you're adjusting the... Are you adjusting the levels? You seem distracted. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay, so there were a couple play index research things that were done by people in the Facebook group. And I, I've saluted some play index research that's been done in the last couple of weeks and, and people have timed their, their posts about play index research. It seems to coincide with the listener email show day. Anyway, a couple of people purchased play index subscriptions using the coupon code BP and they did some interesting stuff with their newfound abilities. So I will just summarize their findings quickly. So Andrew Kleinman did a play index segment related to Tim Lincecum. He was looking for he was looking for uh, pitchers who had made the most money while having negative war or something like that. He wasn't able to do exactly what he had set out to do originally, but he did find that Tim Lincecum and Dan Heron appear to be the only two pitchers ever to qualify for the ERA title and produce negative war in three consecutive seasons. Mm, which that's is a good one. Yeah, that is. And I'm surprised because we've we've talked about position players who've done that. Well, I guess the, the ones we've talked about didn't necessarily qualify for the batting title. We were talking about guys like... Who Betancourt and yeah, but the the whole point of of identifying Betancourt is that he had he had and and looking for a successor was that he had qualified I think five out of the six years or something like that. So uh, that was why he was he was chosen because he kept on playing. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, that was interesting. I'm sort of surprised that that, that hasn't happened before, but. Interesting finding, and another bit of Play Index research by Andrew Patrick, who purchased Play Index a couple days ago, and wanted to see how often somebody has had Tony Sipp's performance in the Oakland-Houston game Tuesday, or, or on Monday, I guess, where he walked four batters, 
consecutively unintentionally without getting an out or giving up a hit. Mm. And he was curious how often that has happened. And he found that that is a very rare occurrence, that it's happened only 19 times, that this is only the second time it's ever happened twice in the same season since 1949 when that happened. Before this year, you have to go all the way back to April 6, 2002, when Miguel Asensio walked four straight White Sox in a 14-0 blowout loss, although he has the honor of being the only person to do it on exactly 16 pitches. That's a good one. That is a good one. Yeah. Good finding by Andrew. No, two Andrews. So good findings by them. And please feel free to post your play index research in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You have some play index research that we'll get to a little later in the show. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to this one. Mm, Good. Me too now. So let's start with a question from Dave in Silver Spring, Maryland, who says, is there any data available on hitters bat speed? It's discussed all the time, but is there any hard data on who swings the fastest and if it correlates to production in any way? If the data doesn't exist, do you think faster bat speed would correlate to better performance? Who do you think swings the fastest? Which part am I answering? (laughs) All of Uh, it? Yeah, any parts of it that you feel like answering. Uh, So, well, there's no public bat speed measures that Mm -hmm. we can access. So uh, we don't know those things. Some teams measure it, uh, I've been told. Um, mm-hmm. And we, I think we've talked, I think at some point, maybe around the, the, the 100s episodes, I think we talked about uh, why it would be useful. It, would be a, it seems like it would be a way of uh, seeing how pitchers handled a certain pitch, for instance, if they fly. Like, I don't think it would be that significant to know that John Carlos Stanton's bat speed is, you know, 1.2 miles an hour faster than... Um, than um, Johnny Peralta's or whatever, uh, because you know that you you at this point at this level with that much um, you know data about their performance, you just sort of would trust that their performance works no matter what their bat speed is. I mean, it, I don't know that it's a strong correlation between bat speed and success. Like, there's probably some correlation between bat speed and certain skills, um, mm-hmm. but. There are very good hitters who don't exactly have great bat speed, but their bat stays in the zone long. They have a different kind of a, a, a plane to their swing, perhaps. Um, and so, like, uh, like I think uh, somebody told me that uh, Adrian Gonzalez, for instance, doesn't have a particularly fast bat. I don't know if that's true. Maybe I'm misremembering it. But the point that the person was trying to make is that some hitter who I thought of who was good measured out to have a, a you know, not not very good bat speed. Um, so, uh, however, I think that it would be um, it would be useful to see how their bat speed changes on certain pitches, on pitches in certain parts of the strike zone, or certain types of pitches, or uh, certain sequences of p- pitches. I think it'd be uh, a good way of gauging whether they were beat on the pitch. Because as it is now, um, uh, if somebody throws a pitch to Stanton, I know whether he took it or swung at it, and if he swung at it, I know whether he made contact or didn't make contact, and if he made contact, I know where the contact went, and that's it. That's all I really know, and that's mm-hmm. three fairly blunt questions that you're answering. You don't actually know what, how, whether he was beat and how badly he was beat, and you might argue that on particularly like uh, off-speed pitches and fastball, well, 
uh, those are the two kinds, right? Off-speed and fastball. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might argue that on all pitches, um, there would be uh, there would be kind of imperfect swings when he's beat. When he there, a good swing would be harder than a bad swing. And uh, if you're seeing that he's consistently uh, taking slower swings on certain types of pitches, it would give you a, kind of a, a more specific idea that that's a pitch he's struggling with. So that's what I, mm-hmm. that's what I would think. Yeah, and there are some methods coming out that could do this. I don't know what what methods teams use currently, but at the last couple of baseball seminars and conferences, Sport Vision has presented a a method that they're I think tentatively calling BioFX or something that would track the path of the bat and and that's one of the things that they've mentioned that it would enable you to do is to see why a guy missed uh, why you know was he late to the pitch or was he timing it correctly but but swinging too high or too low and maybe one of those things would be a, a better sign than the other and that technology is is still being developed they're still sort of working that out i don't know whether statcast will eventually have the ability to to measure bat speed you would think that that's a possibility so so this information will will be out there i guess and and it does seem like it would be useful but but you yeah you for, could for probably an amateur player it'd be very useful if you yeah definitely there no doubt about it yeah i'm sure that you could infer bat speed pretty well just by looking at who hits the ball the hardest or at least that would be there'd be some relationship there do you think uh since since dave asks do you think that anyone swings faster than javier bias i think that bryce harper might swing faster than javier bias Uh well i wish we could answer that question in fact i will i will say that i think that bryce harper does swing faster Mm mm-hmm than Javier Baez. People are like running to their bookies <laughs> <laughs> with this information. <laughs> Bet it all. <laughs> on, on what? I, I don't know. No idea. Uh, <laughs> but I have pertinent information. <laughs> all right. Uh, you actually answered this question via email. So, so let's answer it for all the people. So this question comes from Lee, who was listening to another podcast, and he he writes that they attributed the the Cardinals' success to the offense, noting that the Cardinals have won 80% of their games this season when they score four runs or more. Given the present scoring environment, doesn't that corollary apply to most teams, good and bad? Perhaps 80% is a bit high compared to the rest of the league, but I would imagine that the cards aren't doing anything too special within these parameters. Thoughts? You you looked up the answer to this. The answer is that the league overall is at 75%. Uh, so that would mean that, I don't know, the Cardinals have probably won like two more, three more than average. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's nothing notable about that. Particularly when, if you you know, if you think that maybe, I mean, the league average, including the American League and um, including you know teams that play in better hitting environments and who might have worse pitching, so uh, there's nothing remotely special about this. How high would it need to be, knowing what I just told you? How high would it need to be before you thought there was something? If also, like, I the okay, 
even if there was something, I don't even know what that thing would be. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so that like you should, so 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 you want to score four runs or more. Right. right? That's <laughs> that's also not much help. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I mean, tells the, you. yeah, so I don't really know what you would do with it anyway. Like, I don't know if that tells you that, does that tell you that, I mean, so if, if you knew a team won 100% of their games when they scored four or more, would that tell you that the team's success that the is due to hit, offense? It would tell pitching you was good, due right? to, yeah. to pitching, right. Like, all mm-hmm. you need to do is score, well, as it turns out, mountains of runs, basically, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll probably win. It doesn't actually say anything, so I'm not sure that I would draw a lesson from it regardless. Mm-hmm. Is that, I don't know, I, n- I never know how to, I never know how I'm supposed to react to those. Right. Like, I just, I never know. Like, I I get it, mid-game I sort of get why the broadcast would point it out, because you've just scored the fourth run and they want to sell you on this being, you know, a bigger deal than it is. They're trying to convince you that news is happening in front of you. Um and of course, I have an op- I have an objection to that too. But at least I understand. But I don't know what good it would necessarily do to tell somebody, uh, uh, in a non-game situation, because mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it tells me about the team. If they were like, if they won 92 percent or something, I'd go, oh, wow, they're really that's a that's probably a really good team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is a variant of your least favorite sort of stat, right? We've talked about this before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Do you want to, can uh, this just put it in mind Wes's question, which is totally different, but I'll, I'll, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't answer it anyway, so I'm, I'm going to just read it. Sure. Wes says, imagine a universe in which a team goes unbeaten in the regular season with 162 5-3 victories. Knowing nothing else about their team, what odds would you put on their winning the World Series going into the playoffs? Would that be enough to make a team an actual favorite, 51%? Yes. Yeah, it wouldn't make that by far <laughs> almost a one hundred percent favorite because if if I if a team won a hundred percent of their games, particularly mm-hmm. if they won them by the exact same score, uh, I would conclude that they knew how to do something uh, indefensible and probably illegal, and that it was impossible that it was a fluke. And I would bet on them to win every other game five to three going forward. Mm-hmm. So I would say that if they went 162 and 0, no matter what the score of those 162, I would probably bet on them to win the World Series. I would say that I would put their odds at about 98.5 or so, maybe 99. And the only one percent that I would leave would be the acknowledgement that clearly something goofy is happening, and therefore it is a kind of non-honest representation of probability because you don't know what levers are being pulled and what strings are being pulled, and uh, it's there's that one or two percent chance that whoever is doing this will decide to do the opposite just to mm-hmm. to do it yeah and i mean the the principle of the question it seems is that you know wes is trying to get us to come up with a scenario where we would actually favor a team in the playoffs and i mean there is okay, so often a favorite right? there's usually a favorite no 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 there's not usually a favorite to win the world's before the playoffs you'd have to win three three oh, seven, right. okay. three series so this is this is only so right. the, he's not asking if they would be favored in each series or oh, I see. Be, they would be the most favored of the teams ah. he's saying they would actually be favored against the field so ah. what would a team need to do in your mind to be favored against the field going into the postseason 50 <laughs> 51 percent or better probably more than any team has ever done 
Yeah, I, I think mean, that's true. But to, but how much? How much more? They'd have to. Gosh, I mean, they'd have to win a hundred forty games. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I think I'd go at one twenty six. I think I'd I'd pick them. Hmm. Yeah, I don't even know if that would do it for me. Maybe. I mean, you know, you know, they're going to have home field advantage at least twice. You know, they're going to be significantly better than the other teams. Mm-hmm. I mean, significantly better, right? I mean, if they won one hundred and twenty six games and only lost thirty six, like they just destroyed the good teams too, right? I mean, you'd mm-hmm. have to, like, so okay. So the Mariners in two thousand eleven, uh, two thousand one. They won 116 games, mm-hmm. and so I'm just looking to see what they did against playoff teams that year. Um, who made the playoffs that year? All right, the Yankees, the Indians, and the A's. Okay, so against the A's, they went. Uh, wow, against the A's, they went like, jeez, uh, they played the A's a lot. I can't count this much. Six, seven, eight, nine. They went like ten and nine against the Yankees. They went. Jeez, eh, they played the Yankees a lot too. One, two, three, four, five, there, six, seven. There are, you don't have to count manually. There are there are versus team splits at Baseball Reference. So ten and nine versus Oakland. Six and three versus the Yankees, and five and two versus Cleveland. Uh huh. Um. So. I'm not sure what I was supposed to. But oh yeah, so you're adding, you know, a team that's even significantly better than that. Even you would think that they would just be beating up on every team. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I brought that. That thing I just brought up wasn't that helpful. <laughs> but 126. I mean, 126 wins. Just like I sort of think that maybe once you get to that point, the improvements become even sort of uh, like it, it's not a. It becomes like a disproportionate amount of okay. <sighs> All, right. <laughs> All right. So let's say you have to to go from ninety wins to a hundred wins. You have to improve by X units of goodness. But to improve by a, from one hundred and fifteen to one hundred and twenty-five, which is also ten wins, I think you'd have to improve by like three X mm. units of of goodness. Mm-hmm. Just because at that point you're losing so many games to, to sort of luck and fluctuation, and the sort of things that are indefensible. I mean, the only reason that the 126 win team should ever lose to anybody else is just that, like you know, baseball's screwy. You know, sometimes all the hits come with runners in scoring position. It's like you can't, like you you, it's it's easy to get incrementally better than your opponents, but at a certain point you just have to get incrementally better than than math and physics and luck and that's mm-hmm. really hard to do so to go from 100 and even from the mariners of 116 to 126 seems to me that you would have to be like um you know roughly what did we say the all-star team would win i don't know i think we I, we had different numbers but i forget yeah. i think that you though would have to be better than the all-star team at that point mm-hmm. anyway all right. Uh, 26, I'm saying 50% or better. Okay. All right. Uh, let's do one more before play index. This comes from Dan, who says, just been listening to the podcast about Alex Gordon. This is the one where we were talking about Alex Gordon as an MVP candidate and 
and guys whose uh, a large percentage of their their win value has come from defensive ratings and whether they can ever be solid MVP candidates. So Dan asks, uh, he's wondering if this could be solved by war being produced with confidence intervals. Alex Gordon could have the higher war, but because his rating comes mostly from the defensive side, he would have a bigger error bar. What do you think? So I, I feel like no one no one objects to the logic of this idea. The only possible objections really are just in its adoption or in its uh, user friendliness, I guess. People, people like looking at one number and having to write, write every time you cite a war somewhere, having to cite a range uh, would possibly turn some people off. It, it obviously, even now, just having multiple versions of war is the, the go-to critique of the the whole idea of the stat for people who don't like the idea of the stat that is fodder for uh, you know that's they take that as evidence that that no one really understands what they're doing because no one can even agree on one war so if we then take uh not only you know three different versions of a win value stats but then each measurement of each player also has uncertainty and we can't even say what a what one player was worth according to one system necessarily, then of course it further dis- discredits it in the eyes of, of those people who are inclined not to credit it anyway. But but that's probably not a, a great reason to do it um, or, or not to do it. It's uh, it's sensible. It would, it would, I think, convey the fact that, that there's more uncertainty around a player like Gordon than than a player like Trout, for instance. So it would be a bit of a challenge from a display standpoint, but otherwise it kind of gets the idea across. I, I actually dislike it for the exact opposite reason. Um, I think that it um, it implies, it, it actually implies more certainty by adding, like it, it, it it's like going, it's okay. It's like saying that we not only sure we don't know exactly what his war is, but we do know exactly the confidence interval. Like it, it implies more specificity in a weird way. Like you're just piling on number uh, a new number on top of a new number on top of a new number, with the implication being that we're getting closer and closer to to uh, to truth here. But really, the the whole point is that there's just doubt, and it's good to not look at any of these as conclusive. They're just guides to sort of think about a player uh not necessarily to be conclusive and so the more specific you make the um the the numbers around it in a way the more you're taking away the user's um uh freedom to uh to just to just sort of doubt them and to just take them as what they are a non-conclusive estimate at what a player has done on the field um i know that used appropriately that they would not uh that this would not be a problem but i just think that people would that the lesson that people would draw from them is that we have such a minute understanding of how all these numbers are related to each other and what the interplay is of them that we can not only give you a number to the 10th uh that says how much he's worth but we can also give you these other numbers that are even more specific um and that are more complicated than people even really understand that tell you even more uh, uh, in even more detail exactly what he's worth. And so that's 
kind of why I, I, I wouldn't like it. I, mm-hmm. I think it's good for them to be kind of vague at this stage. Uh, and to... Either way, we're talking about perception problems, right? That's the basis of the objection, not the, the actual idea? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay, play index? All right. So uh, I, I did this play index before tonight's Cubs game. Um, and so some of these numbers are going to be um, pre, pre-number numbers, and some of them are going to be um, slightly post-game numbers. So you'll just have to go with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so Javier Baez uh, struck out, I think, four times. He struck out at least four times. I'm not sure what he did after I saw that he had struck out four times. Um, and so Javier Baez, yeah, he did. He went over four with four strikeouts. So he has now struck out four times in a game, uh, four times in his career. Uh, he's only played 21 games. This is amazing. This is interesting. <laughs> As I, I've uh, found that Javier Baez has been a rich source of fun facts. Um, Alex Rodriguez, for instance, has struck out four times in a game, four times in his career, as has Javier Baez. Um, so I went looking at what it means that he's struck out four times in a game, four times in his career uh, this early. And so first off, uh, like I said, I did this before the game. So three through 20 was already the most in history through 20 games of a player's career um, by a lot. One other player had had done it twice. That's Esteban German, Herman. Mm-hmm. Uh, no other player had done it even twice in his first 20 games. Um, and uh, it takes to game 50 before anybody catches up to him at three. Now, this is at three. This is before he got his fourth. So through 50 games, three players in their careers have done it three times. And those three players are Javier Baez, George Springer, and Danny Santana, who all did it this year. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Strike out Scourge. Uh, yes. So uh, Springer uh, is it ta- Springer is the one who finally passes Baez uh, at, at, with his fifth one at about game seventy-five. So through f- seventy-five games of his career, George Springer has a- has as many four strikeout games as all but one hundred and twenty-eight players in history. Um, and so that he's I mean, that's a lot. He's way ahead of everybody else's pace. Um, however, around 125, somebody else takes the crown from Springer. Um, Springer, I don't think Springer's even played 125 games. But around game 125, somebody else passes him. That person is Bo Jackson. So uh-huh. Bo Jackson struck out his uh, four times in a game uh, for the fifth time in game 125. And from that point on, he was just unstoppable. He was the absolute king of the four strikeout or more game. Uh, he retired with 19 at the time. That was the second most in history. It's currently the fourth most in history, which is incredible because Bo Jackson only played 694 games. He basically played like four and a half full seasons. And he has more four strikeout games than anybody, you know, almost anybody in history. Uh, it took Ryan Howard, who is the leader in this category, to game 890 to match Bo Jackson. Uh, and uh, through 694 games, which is how many Bo had, only five players in history had even 10. Um, Bo had 19. Only five had 10. Uh, Howard at 15 was the closest. So this got me thinking because Bo Jackson, you know, he's, I don't think of him as being like the strikeout king. Uh, 
I mean, he struck out a lot, but he didn't play long enough to make any, like, he, he first of all, he hardly ever played a full season, uh, mm-hmm. and he didn't play that long, so it's not like he has a bunch of strikeout records, but when you look at Bo Jackson, he struck out an insane amount of time, and so I started adjusting, I did all this by play index, by the way, I, I'm, not, I'm not giving you the <laughs> step-by-step of how I did this, but all of this came from play index, so um, I, I, I wanted to adjust for career, uh, for era, so Ben, yeah. Uh, who do you think of as the the sort of who's the first name in strikeouts in your mind? Reggie Jackson. Okay. Of the post eighty eight era, who's the who's the number one name in strikeouts? Ben. Adam Dunn. All right. So good. So Adam Dunn has struck out in twenty eight point five percent of his bats. I believe he's the all time leader in career strikeouts. I believe. Um, maybe only AL. I'm not sure. Uh, but he has struck out a ton. 28.5 is a lot. Um, and so who's another name you think of? Is strikeout Mark Reynolds. All right, Mark Reynolds. See, compared to Dunn, Mark Reynolds is clearly the king. Dunn, 28.5%. Mark Reynolds, 32% of his at-bats, 31.97%. Uh, you might have said Chris Carter, who, mm-hmm. uh, who struck out in 33.8% of his at-bats, which is even more than Mark Reynolds. Uh, and one might say Springer, who's at 33%. Um, however, you have to adjust for era, right? Mm-hmm. So Bo Jackson is at 32%, which is about just slightly, slightly, slightly more than, than Mark Reynolds. But during Bo Jackson's career, the league as a whole struck out in 15% of their at-bats. In Reynolds' career, 186 In Carter's career, 19.4%. In Springer's career, 23 So K plus, K, K percentage plus, Mm-hmm. Uh, strikeout rate divided by league average strikeout rate. Adam Dunn, actually, not so bad. He has a K-plus of 160. George Springer, not so bad, believe it or not. K percentage, a K-plus of 163. Bad, but not so bad. Mm-hmm. Mark Reynolds, 172. Chris Carter, 174. Javier Baez, before, before game 21, so through the first 20 games of Javier Baez's career, Javier Baez had struck out in 42% of plate appearances. He is, I mean, he strikes out enough to be an impressive <laughs> three true outcomes. Yes. On his, just on that. Up to 44.4 now. Yeah. So, but during Baez's career, 20.3% strikeout rate. So Baez's K plus is 206, which is impressive. I mean, that's like, that's like, what that's like uh that would be Albert Pujols' best year of OPS <laughs> right. plus yeah uh-huh. exactly uh so 206 however Bo Jackson Bo Jackson actually had a K plus of 212 wow yeah he struck out in 32% of his plate appearances at the time the league was only striking out in 15.1% of his plate appearances their plate appearances Bo Jackson for his career struck out as much as Javier Baez in his first 20 games, and Javier Baez is like the most extreme thing I've ever seen. <laughs> wow, good play index. So there you go. Uh, mm. Bo Jackson, man. <laughs> so have you, does this make you conclude anything about Baez? Like, does it, has it changed your opinion about him one way or another? Yeah, oh, you mean this, what the play index, or this, like his first just, 20 just, games? Yeah, first twenty games. He's oh so- yeah, he's 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 awful. <laughs> like I have I have I have like uh, I I would say that my hope 
for him has dropped to about, I don't know, 60% of what it was 20 days ago. Huh. Even with the home runs. Even with the, the right. if velocity. You, if you extended his, his current line over a 650-plate appearance season, he would strike out 289 times and hit uh, what 40, 49 homers. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> So he would basically have, uh, or no, 50, 51 homers. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is the strangest, strangest line I think I can recall, probably. Just even, I mean, even over such a tiny sample, and, and obviously it, you don't pay attention to what everyone has been doing in their last 20 games. You pay attention to bias because it's the beginning of his career, and he's one of the, the most highly touted prospects in baseball. Maybe someone else has had a, a crazier slash line over 90 plate appearances, but I kind of doubt it. <laughs> this is, this is really crazy. Let's see what I'm going to see what Frank Coors, I'm not because he's Frank Coors or anything, but I'm just curious what Frank Coors slash line was through 90 plate appearances. It was, uh, 400, 407, 767. <laughs> 17 strikeouts with no walks. It's <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> huh. Um, yeah, I, I mean, he, it, he, there's certainly, like, he has demonstrated that he has uh, perhaps the single best, um, uh, the single strongest control of perhaps the single most valuable tool that a player can have, right? Like, it's conceivable that nobody in baseball can hit home runs like he can hit home runs. And that's the best place to start from. It's just that I would think that, I think that when you're talking about small stretches of games, um, the the stats that have smaller numbers seem to me to be more prone to fluctuation than the stats that have bigger numbers, if that makes sense. Like, the difference between, like, seven strikeouts and, or seven home runs and five home runs is only two, but mm-hmm. it would make a huge difference in how we were assessing him. Whereas the difference between 40 strikeouts and 38 strikeouts is only two, and it changes absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the home runs are less likely to keep pace than something like the strikeout rate is likely to keep pace. Mm-hmm. He's also, I mean, he's 21. This is more or less what we were told to expect. The call-up that Craig Goldstein wrote about Javier Baez is looks extremely i think he wrote it no he didn't write it what did he write who wrote this one? hang on uh it looks very prophetic is all i'm saying mm-hmm. uh because it basically predicted all of this mm-hmm. yeah his his plate discipline stats are also pretty fun mauricio rubio and jordan Gorosh. Mm-hmm. kind of a crazy chase rate and a really really low contact rate when he does chase and kind of not even all that much below average contact rate when he swings at strikes and not even really overall uh that much higher a string rate swing rate than the league average but the the chasing and the missing while chasing is problematic but it's it's kind of fun for now Mm -hmm. um adam dunn by the way is third in strikeouts on the all-time leaderboard and uh because we, we talked about that once right we, we were both surprised that reggie jackson was still on top even oh yeah despite playing in a, a lower strikeout era 
Uh, by the way, uh, Baez actually started off with, uh, he struck out three times in six plate appearances in his first game, and then he didn't strike out in either of the next two games. So he is currently on a 37 of 72. No, sorry, 37 of 76 stretch. So that's like the best uh, the best two months of Craig Kimbrell's career, mm-hmm. more or less. <laughs> Fun. All right. Well, good play indexing. And again, the coupon code is BP. You should use it if you want to subscribe to the play index and gain the ability to look up interesting stats like this. Did you see my other tweet tonight, Ben? I did not. Javier Baez tonight tied Tony Gwynn's career high for his strikeouts with 40. (laughs) That's good, too. You're getting a lot of material out of this. I'm happy for you. He's He's having a good month for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Uh, so, okay. Well, there was another listener email related question that you were planning to email, uh, planning to answer via Plaindex, I believe. Would you like to do that now? It comes from Ian from San Diego, who says that Eric Ibar's platoon splits are 276, 318, 383, and 275, 311, 388. Using the arbitrary benchmark of 4,000 plate appearances, because Eric Ibar has just over that, is anyone else remotely that close to even? I know you're not my math monkeys, but I always hear about extreme platoon splits and rarely hear about the opposite. Any insight would be great. Uh, So I just looked at switch hitters. We talked about reverse splits um, not long ago. And the couple of, like, uh, Ichiro and, and Kelly Johnson were, I think, the only two players of like the last you know long time who have reverse splits from the left side and there's there's are extremely close but i just looked at um switch hitters to see if if there was anybody who was closer and it's it's possible that there are there's nobody who is quite so similar like in all three slash stats um you know because the average is the same the on-base percentage is the same and the slugging percentage is the same but if you just look at uh ops um, John Shelby had the exact same OPS from both sides of the plate. And it looks like um, Ibar's, Ibar's um, is extremely close, but it looks like there are like three guys who are closer overall, uh, older guys, and uh, one of them is, is active, and that's Jose Reyes. And Jose Reyes' line is, uh, is, is pretty darn similar um, from either side of the plate. Um, so it is, uh, 290, 339, 439, 295, 350, 430, and the OPSs are only two points apart. Um, so there are people who are that close. I don't know. Switch hitters. Uh, yeah, it's, it's weird that they would be exactly the same mm-hmm. as they are with Ibar, but mm-hmm. it's not, a, it's not at for sort of obvious reasons, it's not that rare, or it's not as rare. Shelby, incidentally, had 15 extra points of OBP on one side and 15 extra points of slugging on the other side, so you could actually argue that he shows more vari- variation than mm-hmm. Ibar did. So Ibar's close to okay. the best, but other people are close to the best, too. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, last one from Miles who links us to a 538 article, which, uh, so far as I can tell, just sort of duplicates research that's been 
done a few times before, many times before, about the the changing size of the strike zone based on the count, how the strike zone expands when when the batter is behind in the count uh, or ahead in the count, and uh, vice versa when behind. And he wants to know what we think about this. Are we happy that this is a thing? He says, uh, do we hate this? It extends games by extending plate appearances. But I think there is some charm to the fact that the umpire is helping out the party that is struggling, the pitcher who can't get one over the plate or the hitter who can't diagnose a ball from a strike. This seems a ripe area to shorten games, but I'm not sure I'm ready to embrace the cold specter of robot umpires. Even um, the weird thing is that the the general idea that people have about umpires, they do the opposite. They reward the pitcher who is in control and... Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's what that's kind of what the basis of even of what framing is. Right. Although maybe you could say that's just uh, a visual thing. Um, But, you know, they always talk about how, you know, a pitcher who's hasn't been around the strike zone isn't going to get calls. The umpire's not going to bail him out. Yeah. Uh, And yet it's the exact opposite. I hate it. I completely hate it. If anything, I would like to see the opposite. Uh huh. So, well, so the the positive spin on it, I suppose, is that. It makes uh, it, it makes the plate appearances more. It makes the outcome less certain, I suppose. Right at, at that point in the plate appearance, when it once it gets to o two or three o or something, there's there's a greater chance that that this is not going to just end in the very predictable result. That it's not going to end in a walk. That it's not going to end in a strikeout. It gives it gives the party that is at the at a disadvantage, a helping hand and helps equalize things. So you could say that that that's good. That at any given time, the outcome of the plate appearance maybe is less less uh, predictable than it would be otherwise. And so maybe maybe that's a good thing. That's true. Yeah, maybe it is. So there's that. You've swayed me. Although I mean, once you once you get to three O or O two, you are in a pretty deep hole. Even so. But it's it's not a totally automatic out, which it would be a little closer to being if uh, if there were no variance in the size of the strike zone. I mean, it sort of you know it it kind of rubs you the wrong way just based on your sense of fairness, and there's no no reason why a player should be penalized for getting ahead in the count, as you said. The guy who's struggling maybe should be punished for 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 that, and and it asks a lot of players to adjust their expectations and their understanding of the strike zone from pitch to pitch, which of course they all do because they're conditioned to do that and they they know this is a thing, um, but it's it's still added difficulty for them to have to factor in the count as they try to make these incredibly difficult decisions about whether to swing at a pitch or not. They have to consider whether it's it's a count in which the umpire is going to screw them over potentially. So it's not fair, but maybe it maybe it makes baseball a little bit more compelling. That's my best argument in favor of it. Yeah. Okay. It. Uh, yeah. You think about <laughs> you it. It came out swinging against this. No, no, it? you completely convinced me. <laughs> wow. I'm on your side, and it's not even your side. Um, it does. I wonder. So, if you're Cliff Lee, and you have 
say, I don't know, 175 02 counts in the season versus, um, uh, you know, uh, Jorge De La Rosa, and you have like 80. That's mm. like, uh, that's, uh, that's almost enough of a disadvantage that Lee has on almost enough pitches that you could actually maybe see it affect his war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've you've written about count specific stuff before with pitchers, right? Max Scherzer and how he's in certain counts more often than the typical pitcher, or whatever your conclusion was. That was that was interesting. It seemed like a promising area for further research. You're not my editor anymore, Ben. So enough <laughs> of this passive aggressive. <laughs> I expect the article on my desk by Friday. All right, so that is the end of this episode. Please send us some emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Please support the Play Index, as we have as we have already said, using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild and subscribe to and rate and review the podcast on iTunes takes a minute helps us convince other people to listen so we appreciate it we will be back with another show tomorrow